Talk about Tuesday and the best week ever. Lord, thanks so much for your word and a chance to open it now. And God, as we do, uh, we come expectantly. We come uh, ready to receive the things that you want to teach us. I don't know where everybody uh, came from today. I know spring break's over. Some, I'm sure some students are lamenting that right now. But, uh, uh, but you know, if we've come from uh, vacation times or just busy times this weekend and, and we've landed in this room, I pray that uh, as we've worshipped you in song, uh, you've connected us to yourself in ways that now as we open your word, we can hear from you and be challenged by what we find there. As always, push me aside, God, speak in my place. I have nothing to share with these people, but you have everything that we need. So lead us to your fount and let us drink there. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're gonna to talk about questions. I did some research and I found out uh, from a, an article on the UK Telegraph from 2013 uh, that the, the most questioning of our species is a four-year-old girl. Did you know that? Uh, four-year-old girls ask about 390 questions a day. That is one every two minutes that they're awake. That's a lot of questions. Anybody raised a four-year-old girl? Yeah, I had one. Uh, I got things like, why is water wet? Always a fun. Uh, sky blue. Anybody get the sky blue one? Where does the sky end? Try to explain that to a four-year-old mind. Uh, as we get older, the, the article went on to say in the study that it was quoting, as we get older, we ask fewer questions. Nine-year-old boys, only about uh, 140 questions a day. They're, they're, we're tapering off. When we get to high school, it's even less. When we get to be adults, I don't know if this is true. They did a study of some kind in the UK, but they say that the average adult only asks about six or eight questions a day. And then it, does that startle you? It startled me. It, it goes to figure, though, if it's true, because... The older they get, the more we think we know, <laughs> or, or the more embarrassed we get if we actually realize or reveal that we don't know. Uh, so, fellows who don't uh, pull over for directions, uh, back when that was you know pre-GPS and stuff, you just weren't going to let on that you didn't know where you were going, and you weren't going to ask, right? That kind of thing. So, uh, as we get older, the point I think of the study is is that we ask fewer questions, uh, and that can be good or bad, I guess, mostly bad. Uh, and, and if we're going by what the scriptures reveal, I, I think it, it proves that it's bad because would it surprise you to know that in those four gospels, uh, Jesus was asked about 183 different questions. Maybe not different questions, and the, the gospels often handle uh, certain things, but according to a, a, an author by the name of Martin Copenhaver, who wrote a book called Jesus is the Question, uh, 183 times in the gospel account, uh, accounts of Jesus, he was asked certain questions. Uh, what's the greatest commandments, one that pops out in my mind? Uh, what must I do to be saved? The rich young ruler asked that one. Lots of questions, 183. This might surprise you to know uh, that uh, Jesus asked 307 questions of the people who were asking him questions. Uh, maybe not every time that Jesus was asked something did he come back with a, hey, let me ask you this. But a, a majority of the times he does. Anybody know someone like that? Whenever you ask him something, they're always like, okay, riddle me this. And you're just like, give it to me straight. Uh, but Jesus was that way. He was constantly challenging people to think. The Bible tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul, 
with all of our strength and with all of our minds. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to wrestle with stuff. Now, I know a lot of you have uh, thought, big thoughts on theology and God, uh, and some of you have been left wanting. I'm one of you. There's things that I don't understand, things that I'll, I'll never comprehend until I see him one day, things that I just trust that God knows when I don't. Uh, this past week, I went and visited a guy who's been in my life group for the last couple of years. Uh, he was in the final stages of uh, fighting pancreatic cancer, and uh, yesterday morning, Chris went to be with Jesus, and uh, he was my age, and I have no idea why that disease visited him and not me or some of the other guys in our group. I have no idea uh, why God appointed his time to be yesterday. Uh, no clue. Uh, lots of questions that I uh, have and don't always find answers of. Sometimes those questions can get kind of mean. I've had periods of my life where I've been angry at God and shaken an angry fist in his face and said, why? Demanded that he answer me. But it seems that Jesus is okay with that because uh, he was cool with people's questions and he asked uh, more than he got. He wanted us to wrestle. I think uh, even now, God is still asking us questions. Uh, maybe he, he's wanting to ask you this today. A kind of, in a paternal way, he wants to come in and say, what in the world are you doing? Anybody ever hear that from like your mom or dad when you were in, the, in, in their bedroom with the crayons just doing the mural on their wall and they walk in and they say, what in the world are you doing? And I'll admit, like 50% of the time, I had no idea. I don't, I, I, I don't know, mom, I'm in here and the crayon thing seemed like a good idea. Um, but God, I think, comes to us and and maybe we're not always ready to hear him, but he asks, hey, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? Maybe he wants to ask you that this morning. What are you doing? Do you really think that's the, the best way to live your life? I think he asks us those things because he's our father. Sometimes uh, we, we get particularly rebellious, and this is one of the questions that God has asked me. Who do you think you are? Anybody ever have a mom that when she got mad at you when you were a little kid, that was one of her favorites? Who do you think you are? Your son? Your only son? Don't kill me? Yeah. I think it's fitting at times in our lives for God to have that uh, query for us. Because I think sometimes we can think that we're him. We can kind of lose sight of who's who in our relationship with him. But I'm, listen... Those are maybe some of the more sterner questions that God might ask us. I'm grateful for the ones that are laced with his grace. Like this morning, some of you came limping in here, and God, through his spirit, is whispering this question in your ears. Do you have any idea how much I love you? I don't think we do. I don't think we begin to understand the breadth and the depth of God's love for us. The Bible tells us that God dances over us. You know, not like uh, he just sacked us in the end zone. You know, not that kind of taunting dance. Uh, but that he rejoices. That he dances over us. That his love for us is spiked at 10 and it will never wane. Uh, and he wants us to know that. That should be our comfort and our strength in all the circumstances of our life. And he, he leans over us. And in our spirit, he whispers, do you know, do you have any idea how much I love you? I'm crazy for you. Can you even begin to comprehend the grace and mercy that I have for you? I think the question that God asks most 
in our lives is, hey, can I help? Hey, can I help? I see you're going through this. You don't have the power to alter your circumstances, but I'm God. Any possible way that I could be of some help to you? Yesterday was a busy day. Yesterday morning we got news from some of our friends, our neighbors, and uh, fellow uh, lifers that uh, uh, the baby that we've been praying for and and hoping would arrive on its due date was going to come a little early. And uh, baby Lydia was born uh, prematurely. Uh, She's just under three pounds. And uh, as the texts were coming over my phone from Walt and Maggie, our friends, they uh, just... You know, kept saying, hey, what can I do? What can I do? How can I help? How can I help? And the answer to that question a lot of times is like, well, just pray. Because you aren't a doctor. And you and I aren't able to manipulate the circumstances that these situations arise. And, and so all we got is our knees and our God. And God comes to us and he says, hey, can I help? And so far, uh, his grace has been sufficient. And baby's fine and mom's okay and we're trusting him to continue to guide in these and other circumstances. But maybe God's kneeling over you this morning saying, hey, can I help? Because you've tried everything else. How about me? Well, whatever the case, God and questions, they kind of go together. He's okay with ours of him. And he has many for us. And today I wanted to just talk about the questions that come up on this Tuesday of Jesus' final week uh, before his resurrection. Uh, there's, there's like four or five of them. I thought, oh, I'll preach them all. And then I got to my study when I got ready to preach or prepare for them. And I said, okay, I'll just do four. And then, <laughs> and then I got here yesterday and I was like, okay, maybe just three. Uh, and then I got ready to preach and I told the guys as we were doing the slides, I'll only do two. And then last night it turned into just one. So you're going to get out for lunch. You're all grateful. But uh, <laughs> there's a bunch. I encourage you to read through Mark chapter 12, 13, and 14, he gets asked a ton of questions in the final week of, uh, of his life before his death and resurrection, and he, he answers many of them with uh, questions, and, uh, and he gets people thinking around him. And so today, we're going to look at this one in particular as we start here in Mark chapter 12. The one that we're going to cover of the five that I hope to cover is uh, one that I don't always talk about from this stage, uh, so God must have intended it. I find it very interesting that God uh, would ordain that Jesus would answer this question just a few days before he's crucified. Must have mattered. Must have been important for him to cover it at this time in his life. We're going to see that uh, in this question, Jesus is going to clarify the pecking order. Everybody understands the pecking order, right? The authority. uh, What our line of authority is and who we uh, uh, submit to first and then second and so forth. Uh, Let's go to the story and we'll see what I mean from that. Uh, They sent to him, they being these adversaries. If you don't know the story of Jesus in the last week of his life, uh, things had been heating up. Just two days prior to this, on Sunday, he'd come into the city of Jerusalem uh, via a huge parade, palms and coats and, you know, just all kinds of yelling and screaming. Uh, The day before, he'd gone into the temple. We talked about that last week, and he wrecked the joint, just trashed it. Uh, There's been all kinds of talk uh, amongst the muckety-mucks of the Jewish culture uh, that this... Uh, uppity-up carpenter from Nazareth needs to go. Uh, It started from the very beginning of his ministry years as he uh, confronted the Pharisees and and other religious leaders with his judgments and and, uh, 
uh, it just got, went from there. Uh, it's gotten worse and worse. And it's finally going to culminate in a few weeks when we talk about Good Friday. Uh, Jesus is going to be subjected to a five mock trials, uh, beaten beyond uh, recognition, and then hung on a Roman cross to die. Uh, there's, there's men behind that, and they're scheming, and this is one of the examples of their plotting against Jesus. They sent uh, to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Here was the, here was the deal. Hey, if we can just get Jesus to slip up in one of his quotes and then we tweet it, well, then everybody will see it and they'll either fall, or fall uh, from following him for this one reason for another and we're gonna see what the question was that they asked here in a second. It's, it's important to note, though, that uh, Pharisees and Herodians, they don't hang out. They're like Red Sox fans and Yankee fans, okay? Uh, they're, just not, they're just not, you know, uh, together. Unless they have a common enemy, then they became friends. The Pharisees were the far right, the, the, the ultra-conservative branch of the Jewish faith and Jewish culture. They were the rule followers. Uh, they were uh, looking down their uh, uh, pious and pompous noses at the rest of the culture who just weren't quite good enough for them, right? And that included the Herodians, who, by the way, were the far left, if you're going politically. Uh, they were called the Herodians because they were either descendants of or in the cabinet or pro, uh, political party of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod being the king who was kind of the governor put in place over Israel uh, in, in the Rome, uh, Roman pantheon of leadership. He, he was Rome's right arm uh, there in Israel. And so uh, Herodians were cozied up to Rome, which the Pharisees hated because they didn't want Rome there at all. The Herodians were mad at the Pharisees because the Pharisees kept pushing this Jewish religious thing that the Herodians weren't really interested in at all. But now they've got Jesus who is threatening them on the Pharisaical side and on the political side and they both feared him enough to join together to ask this question. Now, they joined him together because the question was going to be one of those things that regardless of his answer, he was cooked. He was done. So let's see what the question was that they came to ask. They start with a bunch of uh, buttering up here. There's some, there's some sunshine being blown uh, in big, big, big baskets here. So uh, here he goes. Uh, they came and said to him, hey, teacher, uh, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly you teach the ways of God. And then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Let's, let's talk about some of the sunshine they blew, though, right? Because they came, they were just buttering it up. This, these were a few jabs before they landed the big hook, right? They were just trying to soften him up. They were trying to make him feel, you know, at ease and, and, and give him the impression that they were you know, followers and even uh, you know, believers in the things that he said and did. Now, they said some true statements. They didn't believe them. They didn't mean them. But they said some things that are very true. They said, first of all, that, teacher, we know that you are true. Jesus is the truth. He, he is the life. He is the way. That, that, they nailed that one. He is true, right? Uh, they, they also know that he doesn't care about anyone's opinions. No kidding. Jesus is sitting in the same temple that 24 hours earlier he trashed. Uh, if you come over to my house and make a mess, that's cool. Just don't come back the next day and be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> We're going to have to have a talk, right? Uh, Jesus had all kinds of audacity, at least in the, in the cultural sense of things. He wasn't uh, about anybody else's opinions except his father's. It says that he, he wasn't swayed by appearances. And can we just kind of push pause on the sermon real quick here? Is anybody grateful that Jesus 
when he looks at us, is not swayed by our appearances. And I'm not, I'm not just talking physically. I'm talking spiritually in our rebellion, in our sin, in, in our unwillingness to submit to him. His love for us is unchanging. He's not swayed by what he sees in us. Can you walk out of here today grateful for a God who loves you anyway, please? Because that's who we got. We got a God who loves us anyway. So they're saying all kinds of truth here. They even uh, tip to the fact that he teaches the way of God. Now, they, did, they truly didn't believe that at all because he had spent the Sermon on the Mount blowing up all of the rules that these Pharisees had so meticulously constructed so that they alone could be the obedient ones in Israel. Uh, they didn't think that, but, but, but was Jesus teaching the ways of God? Yeah. Uh, newsflash, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. Anything that comes from his mouth has to be the teachings of God because he is God himself, right? So they were just buttering him up, but they were just, I mean, that's some good theology. Preach that. Out of the mouths of Pharisees comes the truth. But then they ask the question, here it is. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Yes or no? And then they just waited. And they were so giddy with confidence, they were like, oh, we totally got him. And here's why. The Pharisees, the ultra-right conservative Jewish uh, party, basically held that you should never pay taxes to Rome. In fact, to do so would be idolatrous. You would be saying that I'm giving homage to a, 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 a leader, Caesar, who believes that he's a god himself. Caesar's thought that they were God and, and preached in the Roman religion that we are, Caesar is your god. And so it was idolatrous, it was blasphemous, it was anti-Jewish religion. And so they were hoping that Jesus would say, yeah, pay Caesar his taxes, because then they'd get on their cell phones and they would tweet, guess what? Jesus just said we should pay Caesar taxes. Told you he was a fraud. And they'd blow it out to all their followers and everybody, would, it would be a mass exodus. Everybody who'd been following Jesus would be like, I knew it. He's just a Roman pawn, and we're out. Pharisees were rooting that he would say, pay your taxes. The Herodians, they were rooting that he'd say, don't pay your taxes. Why? Because they are in thick with Rome. And here's the deal with Rome. Rome would basically had conquered most of the Mediterranean region, parts of uh, Eastern or Western Asia. I mean, they just controlled all of the known Western world at the time. And, and they were cool with you being in your culture. If you were a Thracian or a Greek or, a, or an Israeli, a Jew, go ahead, worship your gods. Culture stays the same. Just make sure you don't say anything against Caesar or Rome because when you do, in fact, the whole cross thing, it's a, kind of the, the emblem of our faith. Uh, Rome is credited for creating that system of execution as a way to publicly show what happens to people in these conquered territories who come against Rome. They'd post these crosses up on roads leading into conquered towns, and they'd put all the infidels, all the people who did not uh, bow to Caesar, they'd hang them there as a sign, this is what you don't do if you want to live under Rome's authority. So the Herodians were like, yeah, speak out against Caesar. Say you're not supposed to pay the taxes, because we're not going to go tweeting. We're going to go talk to Pilate and the rest of the Roman garrison here, and you're going to be dead by sundown because you'll be a traitor to the government of Rome. 
Tough spot. Tight spot. Let's see Jesus' response. But knowing their hypocrisy, uh, Jesus was on to them. They were just, you know, buttering him up with the whole, you speak truth, you aren't swayed by appearances, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is like, all right, spread it thin, it's a big farm. <clears throat> and he's, everybody get, okay, he says to them, why do you put me to the test? You think Jesus, this is one of the questions he might be asking us sometimes. Fellas, ladies, seriously, we're going to do this again. He looks at these Pharisees who uh, time after time have tried to catch him in some tweetable words. He looks at these Herodians who time after time have done the same. He's like, seriously, we're going down this road again? He says, all right, fine. Bring me, and what's it say there? Bring me a what? A denarius. And let me look at it. And here's what a denarius looks like. Uh, This is the coin that he was speaking of. I don't know if you can see, but... Right here it says T.I. and then Caesar and Divi and then Augustus, Og Augustus. Basically, uh, T.I. stands for Tiberius. That was his first name. Caesar was Tiberius Caesar, uh, but they couldn't fit it on the coin, so he just got his nickname, Ty. And then it says Caesar, and it's Og, Og Augustus means son of Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the Caesar when Jesus was born. Tiberius was now in charge. And so this is basically just the Caesar's name, his face. And on the back of the coin it says Maximus. Pontiff. Maximus uh, basically means chief or top. And pontiff, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, is, is Latin for priest. It's what the popes often called the pontiff. And so uh, basically, this one coin, you have Caesar, the governmental ruler, and Caesar, the religious god of, of, of Rome, as the Maximus pontiff, the chief priest of Rome. Uh, these coins were kind of like these little tokens that maybe if you remember going to arcades, there used to be something before you had video games in your hand, but uh, I remember going to arcades when I was a kid, and you couldn't put quarters into most of their machines, you had to buy tokens. Uh, if, if you want to, you know, uh, get into Disneyland, you got to buy tickets. Th- this was basically your ticket. Uh, Caesar printed up these special coins, you'd have to take your personal, uh, you know, f- funds or whatever currency you had. It's kind of like the temple tax. Remember we talked last week about the the temple, when Jesus cleansed it, one of the things they were doing is that we were selling special money that you had to go and exchange your money for in order to be able to buy the animals that you needed to sacrifice as a part of the Jewish religion, and that's how they were kind of ripping people off. Well, Caesar did the same thing. You had to buy this token, this denarius. It's about four grams of silver, and you would use this one coin for this one tax that was required of every adult Roman, uh, whether natural or conquered, every year. You know what the tax was for? Existence. It was called the existence tax, Uh, i.e., if you want to live this year, give Caesar this coin. Come up with whatever it takes for you to buy this token, and then make sure you turn it over to him as a sign that you uh, have paid your taxes to exist in Rome this year, right? Anybody think taxes like that would get paid if we kind of put that whole, uh, you know, consequence behind it? Pay your taxes or die, cease to exist, Caesar got his denarii. <laughs> so uh, this is the coin that he's brought. It says right there that they brought him a denarius. It'll show it right out. Yeah, and they brought him one, and, and it's, he said to them, uh, okay, guys, whose likeness and in inscription is this? Whose face, whose name is on the coin? And they answered. They, they didn't know where he was going. 
Caesar's. And he says these words. Many of us have heard them before. Maybe not fully understood them. I'll try to explain it today. Uh, Jesus said to them, well, render to Caesar, give or submit to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and then render or give or submit to God the things that are God's. And he dropped the mic (laughs) and he walked away. And it says there that they all marveled. They all stood there with their mouths open, just couldn't believe he'd done it again. And maybe you've read this and been like, what did he say? What was so cool about that? Well, you'd have to be a Roman citizen of the time to understand how he had perfectly wiggled his way from having to answer either camp and giving an answer that was just and right and acceptable in that situation. Here's why. The, the custom of the time was that any currency, any coin that had been printed or minted uh, that had the image of someone on it That coin ultimately is that person's coin. It it, it belongs to them. It'd be like you putting uh, your name or engraving your name on on something that's yours and it's a symbol. If you went to the ball field and you had a bunch of softball bats out there and everybody's trying to figure out whose is whose, you'd be like, oh, there's my marker right there. It's mine. And so what Jesus had done, it said, hey, without talking about who's worthy of taxes, without talking about whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but just going strictly on ownership principles. If a coin's got a picture of a dude in it, give it to him. It's Caesar's because his face is on it. Now, he didn't stop there. He could have. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And in doing so, he set up for us and for those who would follow him the understanding of how authority is meant to work in our existence here on earth. Give to Caesar, give to the government what is the government's. But remember to always give to God what is God's. And when he sets those things up, he sets up the priority. The pecking order is give to God what is God's. And then as a part of giving to God what is God's, render to Caesar or to the government what is the government. So let's talk about those as we finish today, shall we? This is gonna get strangely political. Here we go. What do Christ followers do with the government? Uh, Most of us sitting in here this morning are American citizens. If you're visiting, welcome. But most of us in here grew up here, got here whenever we did, and we are citizens subjected to the government of the United States of America. How do we as Christians function in that regard? Well, what he just said there is that we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Another way of saying that is that we submit to the authority that God has put over us. Understand that there is no government in existence that is not the government by the say-so and okay of a holy God. It's just how it works. If you want to stop off on the top tenets of the Christian faith, the first one is that God is God. He alone is sovereign. He's in charge. So what may seem like a mistake to us a miscarriage of justice, regardless of what political party we come from. Uh, in a democratic society, when, when, the, cal- when, when the vote is done and, and, and powers are put in place, it's not because the people say so, it's because God has appointed and allowed. Are you with me? It's what we believe. It says as much in, in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
Why? For though there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by who? God. He goes on and he says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. He makes it a sin for us to unduly and unjustly come against those authorities that he has allowed and appointed to be in control and in sovereignty over us. What does that mean in our context? Well, it means that we pay our taxes. That's what Jesus is talking about specifically in this uh, context, and April's coming. Uh, You got your taxes to pay, and you pay them. Uh, We can argue about what those taxes are going towards, and we can work through our systems to try to make sure that our tax monies go to things that we believe in. But once uh, a tax is levied by a a government that God has allowed or instituted, uh, we pay them. Uh, Some people have a problem with paying their taxes. There's one guy, uh, he had a particular pang of of conscience, and so he decided to pay back some of the things that he knew he was due. He wrote to the IRS, and he said, Dear IRS, my conscience has been bothering me, so here's the $875 that I owe in back taxes. Then he wrote a PS at the bottom. He said, If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, if, if the law is required of us, We, as an act of submission, this is really key. Some of you are like, I don't know if I'm in on this, Mark. Let me just talk about this. If the the law requires it of us, unless it, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, unless it goes against God's greater law, if the law requires of it, we do what the law requires as an act of honor and submission to the God who has instituted the government over us. Are you with me? And that's something that's so hard for Christians to get. Like when I talk to you about your marriages, if you continually struggle in your marriage, there's probably at least a component of that struggle that comes from you looking straight at your partner and forgetting, partner and forgetting that God is the third part or the, the, the chief part of your relationship with this person. And so when you love that person, you don't do it because they're lovely or lovable. You do it as an act of worship to God and in obedience to his call on your life to love your spouse regardless like he loves you and me. Are you with me? And so if we could figure out that when we submit to each other in relationship, when we submit to our government and things that we may not agree to, like the speed limit, it should be higher. Come on. <laughs> but when we see those numbers posted, when we, when we find out from the IRS what our taxes are, we submit to those things, not because we agree with them, but because God, in his sovereignty, has allowed things to be the way we are for his grand purposes that I won't begin to understand until I get there. And I submit to him in submitting to those things. We pay our taxes. We give honor to our officials. Even the ones we didn't vote for, we give honor to them. And I don't, listen, regardless of what party you're in or where you're at, uh, in the last 20 years, you've had someone to not like. And you've filled Facebook with your vitriol and uh, you, you know, listen, it, it, let's do this too. Are we glad that we live in a democratic society and we've got to say so? Isn't it great to be in a place where we can have opinions? And, and just so you know, this isn't the sermon I'm preaching today, but your opinions should be in line with God's righteousness and his order of things. Okay, that's, a, that's another sermon for another day. But everybody in here, if you're, if you're a part of the American po- po- political process, you have a say-so. It's great to be democratic. But then once things have been determined, even if you continue to disagree with policies, you honor the office and the person. That's why I believe you stand for the anthem. 
You stand for the anthem not because uh, it's required of you, you have the freedom to sit, but listen, as Christians, we stand for the anthem because of the broader uh, significance of it and what it represents, our freedom. It's an honor to, to those who have gone before us to, to make it so that we can be free, right? Uh, you, you honor people in office, even as you disagree with them. You're nice to the police officer who pulled you over, even if you don't think you ran that stop sign. Uh, you're kind in the Plant City Courthouse that you're sitting in because your son ran the stoplight at the Regency. And you're eating his ticket for him. Uh, there's a time and a place and an opportunity by God's grace in our culture to, to make our stand politically. But then once things have been sorted, as long as it doesn't controvert God's will and purposes, you honor those in authority over you as an act of honoring God. We vote. Please vote. Uh, I think it's just foolish not to. Forty uh, percent of the electorate this past election cycle decided not to vote. Uh, that's actually up uh, for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, it's usually been about 50 percent of the electorate that shows up. I read an article the other day that uh, certain things could have changed if Florida had decided to not vote for Mickey Mouse as much as it had. Lots of people wrote in Mickey Mouse. Uh, whatever. Uh, we vote. And then finally, because of time, let me just get to this one. We pray. And this is the most important one. We pray. The, the, the greatest weapon fashioned for mankind in government and in everything in life is the tie that we have, the bond that we have between our God and ourselves to where we can enlist him in the things that we have no control over. Like when this baby's coming uh, yesterday, uh, Weeks and weeks before he's supposed to be, or she's supposed to be here, all we got is prayer, because it's out of our hands. Otherwise, when governments are instituted and we don't agree, agree with the, the directions that they're going, when the uh, headlines alarm us, uh, our our resources are limited. It's not like we can, you know, through phone calls and emails, change policy. At least not alone. But you know who can. The God at the other end of the line on our prayers. That's why Paul, when he spoke to Timothy in chapter 2 of his first letter to him, he says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, askings, uh, requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Let's pray for everybody. But then he says, especially for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is what he says about it. He says, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. We pray. We lift up the things that are beyond our control. Now, some of you are wondering, when, if ever, do I get to say no to the government? <laughs> when, if ever, do Christ followers defy their government? Let me cover that real quick. The first times, or some of the times that we can defy him is when uh, we, uh, we are choosing to obey God even though the government allows what he prohibits. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, we have a code given to us in Scripture that is our code to live by. It's, it's the righteousness of God. And guess what's happened in our country and in other countries in the world? Uh, their code, legal codes, have kind of deviated, allowed more than what the righteousness of God uh, would allow. I would include in those things, stuff like abortion. Uh, legally, you can have those, but I don't think... In, in, in my understanding of, of the issue that it's, it's a Christian option. Uh, uh, 
Uh, quick divorces. We, we don't run to the, to the courthouse the first time something goes wrong in our marriages. We try to work things out according to the scriptures that teach on that. Obviously, it's a sexual free-for-all out there, you know? You can have sex with anybody, uh, at it, you know, almost at any time, uh, whether you're married to them or not. And the laws allow for that. Uh, but the scriptures have tons to say about uh, God's hopes and expectations for us in that area of our lives. Uh, you can be, you know, drunk as a skunk, just don't drive. Uh, that, that a lot of people think, well, yeah, that's, that's what the Bible says. No, that's not what the Bible says. Now, the Bible asks us to do everything in moderation. We're free, don't get me wrong, I like a beer with my fajitas, okay? We're free, but there's limits. And just because the government doesn't draw the same lines as us doesn't mean that the lines that they draw are okay. We stick with what God in his word says, even if the government says it's all right. But then probably the most important for us to understand is that we obey God and say no to our government when the government commands what he prohibits. And again, we've had a pretty good run. The 200 plus years uh, that we've had here in America, uh, God has still been uh, um, open to us. We're, we're, hey, here we are. We're worshiping this morning. No cops standing outside the door taking names, right? In lots of cultures, that's what happens. Uh, people can't meet in the open like this because being Christian is against the law. Uh, do I think that's going to happen in our lifetime in America? I pray not. That's what my knees are for. But do I sense the culture kind of shifting in those directions uh, here and around the world? Sure. And does the Bible predict that persecution is going to come for the church? Yeah. Uh, so if that ever does happen, let's talk about what we do then. We start digging basements in Florida. <laughs> so the churches can meet in those, right? Uh, we start figuring out ways that we can have community that the Bible uh, commands us to have and, and hopes for us to have. We start figuring out ways to carry on in our faith even though our government tells us no. Why? Because our highest authority is God, not the government that he's put over us. The apostles uh, in the early days after Christ's resurrection and return to heaven were preaching the gospel in Jerusalem and in Acts chapter 5, they'd been put in prison a couple different times for the, the, the preaching of this new gospel. It says uh, uh, that they were brought to the, the ruling council, and they had been set before them, and, and the high priest himself started to question them. This is the, the highest uh, you know, legal agent in the Jewish faith. And, and he says, hey, we strictly charge you. We told you guys. You're, you're not supposed to teach in this name, this name of this carpenter Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You didn't just teach about him. You told everybody about him. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Uh, see note there. They did kill Jesus. Uh, and the, the disciples were just in saying that they had done so. But uh, the chief priest and all of his you know, councilmen were like, hey, we told you not to do this. What are you doing? And you remember what Peter said? Peter and the other apostles answered, hey, we got a higher boss. Uh, we obey God, not man. And I pray that all of us would have a faith that would be strong enough that would seek to honor him, our God, ahead of any man and any government. 
The bottom line as we close is that we're supposed to give to God what is God's. And, and, and you might miss this in the first reading of that whole render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. But Jesus was very intentional in using that coin. Because he wanted us to understand when we talked about giving to God what is the God's, it's, it's a parallel to what was happening with that whole tax and Caesar thing. Just because, or in the same way that, that the coin had a picture of the person who owned the coin on it, and that coin should go back to its owner, what does it say in Genesis chapter 1 about all of humanity? It says that God created us in his image. Male and female, he created us. Every one of us sitting in here, whether you know God yet through faith in Jesus Christ, we bear the image of our maker. He has impressed himself upon us. We are created in his likeness. And if we're going with that same principle of ownership, if we bear his image, then we are his and he is ours. And everything that we do should be in line with our owner. He created us in his image. Some of you might argue, yeah, but Mark, but sin came in. And it did in the garden. The image of God in us was marred. Uh, there was a, 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 a sharpie that just went all over the God in us because sin has that way. It skews the image of God in us. But come back to this story of this guy, Jesus, the son of God who comes to earth. He lives a perfect life so that he could go to a cross and become the perfect sacrifice for those of us marred in our image by sin. And he restores, he redeems, say it however you want, but he brings us through faith in him back into a right standing with the God whose image we bear. And he, he tells us in, in, in the writings of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4, it talks about how we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. Anybody ever heard that before? That you've been sealed. And whenever we, we hear about this sealing in the Holy Spirit, most of us think, hey, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. I can't be taken uh, you know, away from God once, once my faith is, is secure in him. And that's, that's absolutely what that text is teaching. But this week I read that thing and I was thinking, wait a minute, why did he use the seal thing? Because when he was talking about seals, uh, he wasn't talking about, ur, ur. He, was talking about <laughs> he was talking about the wax that would be melted and dripped on the edge of a scroll, like a, an ancient email. And, and they would take the wax and they'd put it on there. And then whoever was the, the writer of the, of the scroll, he would take his ring. It would be a, a symbol of his house or, a, or his initials. Or, as often was the case, it would be his likeness his face etched into the ring on his finger. And they would take that ring and they'd put it in that hot, moldable wax. And when they pulled it away, what was left there was a sign of ownership, a sign of authority, a sign that gave whatever was written in that scroll the gravity that it deserved. It was a seal. And so here's what happened in Jesus. We originally created in the image of God, and we were his. Sin separated us from God and marred our image of him in us. But through Jesus, the image has been re-impressed upon us. We are sealed in him through the Holy Spirit. And when Je- you, know what? you know what gets us into heaven, right? Like if you knew and I, you know, like my friend Chris, if, if we stand before God this day, and he says, why should I let you in? Don't tell him you went to Bay Life. Especially that. No, uh, but uh, no, we're a great church. If you're visiting, we're awesome. Anyway, uh, but don't tell me what the bay life. Don't tell me that you're from a family of Christians. Don't don't read out your stats, because none of that is what gets you into the the gates of heaven. 
let's put it this way. Jesus isn't going to ask, he's not going to ask you when you get to heaven. He's just going to know. You know why? Because when he sees you, when God sees you and I, in the faith that you and I have in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see you and I. He sees his son. He sees his own likeness that's been given to us, restored to us by our faith in Christ. And that's what gets us into heaven. So now, may you and I remember that there is one authority who gives authority to all the other authorities. And when it comes to how we live, we honor those in authority over us on this plane because we know that the one who is the true authority, the God of all things, has allowed that authority to be over us for this time. We honor them as an act of worship to the one true God, and we honor them because we are God's. Initially, created with his image, and then secondly, restored to his image through our faith in Jesus Christ and the seal of the Spirit. We stand and be dismissed. Let's pray. <clears throat> hey, God, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to ask you questions. Uh, help us, Lord, even when we don't have all the answers, to trust you anyway. Uh, we thank you, God, that you whisper uh, and sometimes yell uh, the questions that you need us to consider in our lives so that we can think in different ways and move in different directions. Uh, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who spent a lot of his time uh, in his uh, speaking to his disciples then and to us as his disciples now, asking us probing questions and, and poking us to think in ways that he would have us think. Lord, we, we thank you that you're sovereign, and that you're over all things, and that nothing escapes your view that you're in control even when we don't feel like um, we are. Uh, thanks for uh, protecting us and providing for us through our government, for giving us a great country like the U.S. Uh, of A to live in. Help us to take advantage of our uh, provisions as citizens, but help us to always remember, God, that our citizenship first is your kingdom, not this kingdom. And help us to remember, God, that as we walk through life, we bear your image. If we have put our faith in you, you have restored us uh, to your likeness. And because we bear your image, we are yours. Help us to do your bidding, to bring you the glory you deserve. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who makes all of this possible. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.